Welcome to Tomorrow's World. Today, Hong Kong's reputation and rich traditions are admired in all corners of the earth. Good government, a sound judicial system, and a free market economy, supported by a hardworking people, have created one of the great cities of the 20th and 21st centuries. It boasts of some of the finest hotels, restaurants, and shopping centers in the world. But did you know that Hong Kong, while not being named specifically, is referenced in Bible prophecy? Have you ever considered why it is that Hong Kong has good governance, a sound judiciary, and a free market? For nearly 155 years, Hong Kong was a British crown colony, and during that time it adopted the British way with Chinese characteristics. While Britain ruled the waves, the fragrant harbor prospered economically and became a stopover for wealthy travelers around the world looking for an expensive bargain. And last week's program, I discussed the Stone of Destiny, how it ended up in a small island nation, how that nation came to be known as Great Britain, and how Britain came to possess an empire in which the sun never set. Think about it. In addition to Hong Kong, the British Empire consisted of the second largest country in the world, Canada, the second most populous country in the world, India, an entire continent known as Australia, the pastoral islands of New Zealand, mineral-rich South Africa, and as with Hong Kong, strategic locations which allowed it to control seagates such as Singapore, Malacca, and Gibraltar. It also controlled the all-important Suez Canal, and its brother, the United States of America, built and controlled the incredibly strategic Panama Canal. Did you know that the British and American rise to power were prophesied long ago in the pages of the Bible, and that strategic seagates such as Hong Kong were included in those prophecies? Stay tuned. Welcome again to Tomorrow's World, where today I'm going to give you the second in a series showing that ancient Bible prophecies have come to pass right before your very eyes. I'll begin by a quick review of last week's program for those who missed it, before going deeper into the subject. Last week I told you about a mysterious rock over which the kings and queens of Ireland, Scotland, and England have been crowned. That rock is known variously as the Lea Fael, the Stone of Scone, the Stone of Destiny, and Jacob's Pillar Stone. 
Ancient Irish legends tell us that it arrived in Ireland sometime between the 8th and the 6th centuries B.C. As one story goes, the Jewish prophet Jeremiah brought it there along with his scribe and young princesses. Another legend is explained in the Encyclopedia Britannica online. According to one Celtic legend, the stone was once the pillow upon which the patriarch Jacob rested at Bethel when he beheld the visions of angels. From the Holy Land, it purportedly traveled to Egypt, Sicily, and Spain, and reached Ireland about 700 B.C. to be set upon the hills of Tara, where the ancient kings of Ireland were crowned. Thence it was taken by the Celtic Scots who invaded and occupied Scotland. About A.D. 840, it was taken by Kenneth MacAlpin to the village of Scone. In 1276, King Edward I took it as a prize of war to London, England, where he had a special chair made to hold the stone before placing it in Westminster Abbey, where it resided for about seven centuries. As strange as it may sound, the kings and queens of England, including Queen Elizabeth II, have all been crowned sitting on this throne that holds the stone of destiny neatly tucked away on a ledge beneath the seat. Now what does all this have to do with ancient prophecies and Hong Kong? As we saw in last week's program, the first book of the Bible known as Genesis traces the history of the family of Abraham. And in each succeeding generation, God pronounced prophetic promises and blessings to his descendants. To Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, God said, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Sometime later, God told Abraham, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham or Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God also promised that their descendants would possess strategic land and sea gates, such as Hong Kong. Here's a promise made to the daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah. Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Students of the Bible know that Abraham's son was named Isaac, and Isaac's son was named Jacob and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Now, Israel or Jacob had 12 sons, and each became the father of a tribe of people. For example, one of Israel's sons was named Judah, and he is the father of the Jews. But do you realize, my friends, that the first time the word Jew is used in the King James Version of the Bible, that the Jews were at war with Israel? You can read of this in 2 Kings, the 16th chapter, and verses 5 and 6. Judah is only one of 12 patriarchs, and Jews make up only one of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now, if Jews are still around, which they are, what about the others? And what about these promises of great wealth, kings, many nations, and possessions of strategic land and sea gates? As I pointed out on last week's program, history tells us that ten of the tribes were still around in the first century A.D. when most people think they disappeared into the mists of history. Quoting the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, Wherefore there are but two tribes, two tribes of Israel, in Asia and Europe, subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, and are an immense multitude, and not to be estimated by numbers. Where did this immense multitude, not to be estimated by numbers, go? And who exactly are these ten tribes? How did they become separated from the Jews? And what were they doing beyond the Euphrates River? When the twelve tribes of Israel came out of Egyptian bondage, they eventually settled in the region that we think of today as Israel. The extent of their dwellings was a bit larger than that of today's tiny Jewish state, but that's a general region. Over the course of time they grew into a regional power under King David and his son Solomon. But shortly after the death of Solomon, what was once one nation became two nations, known as the House of Judah, the Jews along with the tribe of Benjamin, and the House of Israel, the other ten tribes including that of Joseph. Both of these nations rejected the worship of God and were overthrown and taken into captivity. The first to be taken captive was a ten-tribed house of Israel around 721 to 718 B.C. The powerful Assyrian Empire removed them from northern Israel and took them northeast to the other side of the Euphrates River, where Josephus attests a huge number of them were still there in the first century. We must not assume that all of them still remained there, but an immense multitude did. The house of Judah, on the other hand, went into captivity to the Chaldeans over 100 years later and was taken to an area far south of where their northern brothers were. Because the Jews continued to keep the biblical seventh-day Sabbath, that is Saturday, they've kept their identity to this day but the tribes making up the house of Israel cast off this identifying sign and have seemingly been lost for the past 2,000 years. But are they truly lost? The prophet Amos, in speaking to the house of Jacob, remember Jacob is Israel, says this about this sinful nation. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord, for surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. By tracing the names by which they were associated anciently and following various migrations, we can see that these people traveled northward and westward, sifted as it were, through other nations. Langer's Encyclopedia of World History points out the following. Omri, one of the last kings of the house of Israel, established a long-lived dynasty. The Assyrians called Israel after his name, Bit Omri, Okumri. 
In his fine work, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy, John O'Gwyn points out the following. The Assyrians in their monuments did not use the name Israel, but rather referred to the Qumri. This is the name by which Israel was known in captivity. Mr. O'Gwyn then shows through history that these people migrated northwestward into northern Europe and the British Isles. From the 7th to the 4th century B.C., a new population spread over Gaul, not at once, but by a series of invasions. They called themselves Chimerians, the name of a people whom the Greeks placed on the western bank of the Black Sea and the Chimerian Peninsula called today Crimea. Called Gauls or Celts by the Romans, these people spread through what is modern France and into the British Isles. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. John O'Gwen's booklet gives us far more details than I have time to cover here. The point is that there are historical sources relating the names by which these peoples were called to the people of the British Isles. While there is a wealth of historical evidence linking the ancient house of Israel to modern nations in northern Europe, and especially to the British Isles, from a historical perspective, it is admittedly controversial among historians. What we know is that these people were large in number and have to be found somewhere on this earth today. And it is in the Bible that we find the keys to their locations. We must realize that all the prophetic promises made of Abraham's descendants do not, as most people believe, apply to the Jews. For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. In other words, the most significant of the blessings passing to Israel's sons were divided in two. From Judah would come a kingly line that would include the Messiah. But the birthright blessing of great national wealth would come through his brother Joseph. Many Christians are familiar with the kingly line and do understand that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the pinnacle of the promises made to Judah, as Jesus was of that tribe. But few have bothered to look at the other part of this promise, the birthright. And understanding the birthright promise is key to unlocking our understanding of major geopolitical events of the last two centuries. And more importantly for you and me, what is happening in our world today and what will happen in the near future. Understanding the birthright blessings explains how a relatively small island nation controlled one quarter of the earth, including Hong Kong. Earlier in this program, I mentioned that Abraham's grandson was named Jacob, but that God changed his name to Israel. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. 
Take careful note of the middle portion of that last sentence again and consider what it means. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. Let us review some of the promises given to Abraham and his descendants that were read today. They would be as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven in number. Kings would come from them. They would possess strategic land and sea gates. And they would make up a single great nation and a company or commonwealth of nations. Why is it that students of the Bible think so little of these direct statements? To a great degree it is a result of neglecting the Old Testament scriptures and assuming that every promise of the Bible is fulfilled in Christ. But is that assumption correct? And the answer is clearly no. Near the end of his life, Israel was introduced to his grandsons, the sons of Joseph. And in this meeting we find an amazing truth, and a truth that cannot be fulfilled in Christ. Remember that the kingly line was to come through Judah, the Jews. And the pinnacle of that promise is Christ Jesus. But the birthright promises of great national wealth were to go through Joseph and his descendants. Let me set the scene. After a long separation in which Israel thought his son Joseph was dead, there was a tearful reunion in Egypt. More than 20 years had passed and they were becoming reacquainted again. Israel learned that Joseph had two sons. The elder was Manasseh, and the younger was Ephraim. They were still young when introduced to their elderly grandfather, Israel. Now let's read what happened. So Joseph brought them, that is Ephraim and Manasseh, from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Joseph understood that his father, that is Israel, was going to pass along a blessing to his sons. He supposed that Manasseh, being the older of the two, was to receive the greater blessing. And apparently the right hand symbolized the greater blessing. But something unusual happened. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, Bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." Here is a clear statement that the name of Israel was to be placed on the sons of Joseph. My friends, this is important. Now when Joseph saw that his father's hands were crossed and the greater blessing was being bestowed on Ephraim, the younger brother, he tried to intervene, thinking his father was making a mistake. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So Manasseh was to become a great nation. But Ephraim would become a company of nations. And in this context, let us notice one of the most amazing prophecies in all the Bible 
that relates to these two brothers. Prior to his death, Jacob, or Israel, called his twelve sons together for a specific purpose. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you, notice this, in the last days. Here we are going to see what will become of each of these tribes in the last days. But how can we know when these last days are to come? Jesus speaks of the last days in this fashion. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. And Daniel refers to this time in this manner. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So both Jesus and Daniel speak of the greatest time of trouble in man's history. Jesus goes so far as to say that the annihilation of the human race would be possible. And Daniel describes this time as being marked by a knowledge explosion and abundant travel. This could only refer to modern times. So what we read in these prophecies is what to expect of Joseph's recent and current descendants. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So Joseph was to spread abroad like branches running over a wall that cannot contain them. And he would have many enemies who would shoot at him and hate him. Nevertheless, the God of Jacob would make him strong. In a similar prophetic passage, this one by Moses, we see this about the military strength of these two sons of Joseph. His glory is like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. When one considers the scope of what much of the world calls World War II, and in China is known as the Japanese War, this prophecy was fulfilled of letter by the Allied Powers, mostly made up of the British Commonwealth of Nations, the Company of Nations, and the people of the United States, the single great nation. Their enemies literally were pushed to the ends of the earth. Now let me add here that there were other nations involved in that great conflict of the last century. And I do not at all mean to neglect their contribution in that tragic human drama. A few verses earlier, Moses also predicted this for Joseph's descendants. Blessed of the Lord is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, a reference to God. Consider the following. Bible prophecies tell us that the descendants of these two sons of Joseph would be as the sands of the sea and the stars in heaven in number. 
kings were to come from them. And we have noted the fact that the royal families of the British Isles have endured from the distant past and have been crowned over a stone known as Jacob's or Israel's pillar stone, which some claim to be the very rock that Jacob laid by his head some 3,800 years ago. Bible prophecy further tells us that they would possess the gates of their enemies. Who is it that has controlled the strategic land and sea gates such as the Khyber Pass, Gibraltar, Suez, the Panama Canal, the Cape of Good Hope at the tip of South Africa, the English Channel, Singapore in the Straits of Malacca, and Hong Kong? Further at the time of the end, they would be a single great nation and a company or commonwealth of nations. They will possess great agricultural and mineral wealth and have the military power to push their enemies to the ends of the earth. However, the Bible tells us that they would be a blessing to the nations. In spite of their many shortcomings, the British have spread good government and prosperity to others and the Americans have run to the aid of country after country when disaster strikes. The single great nation is clearly the United States of America. His younger brother, the company or commonwealth of nations, possessing strategic land and sea gates is none other than the British people and their commonwealth of nations. The British and American peoples have often been referred to as cousins, but they would be more appropriately called brothers, for that is what they are. The strategic location of Hong Kong is one of those prophesied sea gates that would be controlled by one of the sons of Joseph. For 155 years, the fragrant harbor was a part of the mighty British Empire, but no longer. And this brings us to the subject of next week's program, where I will explain why the once mighty empire on which the sun never set is no longer so mighty. We will see what the Bible has to say as to why this empire has fallen and why his brother, the United States of America, is in such trouble and what the future holds for the world as a result. So be sure to come back next week to hear the shocking conclusion of this three-part series. See you next week, same time, same place. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program is produced by the Living Church of God.